Now then, this is all very standard and shouldn't take too long. We're here to make your dreams come true and you won't have to do anything. We'll teach you how to walk, how to talk, how to dress, perhaps some dance training as well. Oh, no, a pretty face is a good place to start, but that's only the start. Actually, the face will need some work too. How attached are you to your hair? Never mind, we can fix it. We'll fix everything. All you have to do is sign on the dotted line. Oh, ignore the fine print, it's nothing. I mean, we'll have complete control over you, your relationships, and your work for as long as the contract is in effect. But that's what it takes to be a star. And who doesn't want to be a star? Welcome back to Cursed Knowledge. I'm Harper Hunt. And I'm Ben Hunt. And today we're actually going to start out by talking a little bit about my favorite movie of all time, The Wizard of Oz. I'm so glad we're doing this, Harper. You deserve you deserve to talk about The Wizard of Oz. We I had really a wizard we really had a do. Wizard of Oz party. I don't know if you know this, but actually Wizard of Oz was one of the two mm-hmm. television shows that I would watch every year growing up. Do you want, to, you want to guess what the other one was? Let's be clear. It was a movie, not a television show. Okay, 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 fair. Uh, I'll, I, I'll be honest. I'm coming up with a blank Ten here. Ten Commandments. Okay, okay. Okay, yeah, I guess that fits. All right, fine. Well, Wizard of Oz was always favorite movie of mine that you graciously sat through a few hundred times at least. Um, and then, you know, I got older. I started getting really into history. And so I started looking into the history of these films that I loved. And, you know, you you learn some things about Wizard of Oz, like how it was a landmark movie for cinema as a whole, you know, capital C cinema with kind of bringing Technicolor to the masses, really kind of proved everything that you could do with it. But also the behind the scenes production just it was an absolute nightmare. I, I want to ask you, though, so I know you got a degree in mm-hmm. history and cinema History studies. and cinema. Were you the only one who said that Wizard of Oz was your favorite movie? Yeah, you get a lot of uh, Pulp Fiction, The Godfather, oh, I The like Godfather that. Part Two. I like that Citizen even more. Kane. Uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World got f- way too many shout outs. And, and I was the only one who was very confidently going, The Wizard of Oz. Nice. Nice. Because I have taste. So... It is your favorite movie, but then Absolutely. you then you learned more. Then I learned more, and suddenly the nice little veil of ignorance in childhood just all went away. All went away. Um, do you know how many people almost died on that set? I do not. Well, the number should be zero. <laughs> this is true. The number was not zero. You've got, you know, very beginning, before you even get to set... The original actor for the Tin Man had to be replaced. They tested out, you know, the nice silver face paint they're going to put on him. And they used pure aluminum in the paint, which he, like anybody else, was highly allergic to. So he ended up in the hospital for two weeks on oxygen and did not continue with the project. Oh, come on. From aluminum poisoning. Yep. That's amazing. It did not work out well for him. The... The other major injury on set happened to Margaret Hamilton, who played the Wicked Witch of the West. 
So if you remember in the movie, you know, she goes, the, the great line, I'll get you, my pretty, and your little dog, too. You know, she threatens Dorothy in Munchkinland, and then she vanishes into a puff of flame and smoke. So to do that stunt, there's a number of things that need to happen in a very set order. We need smoke to come up, trap door to open. Trap door to open. Margaret Hamilton goes down, then the fire happens. And they all need to happen pretty quickly, but they need to happen in that order. Uh, They did not happen. They did not happen in that order. The fire went up before Margaret Hamilton could go down. I believe the trap door malfunctioned. So she suffered second and third degree burns all over her body. Oh, my God. And to add injury to injury, she was, of course, you know, covered in green face paint, paint in total, and it's highly toxic, highly flammable, had to be removed with acetone. Oh, my God. So there's nothing like being wheeled into the ER for severe burns and being told, don't worry, we'll just dunk you in acetone really quick. Uh, So I like looking at at the finished product, let's say. Well, when you were describing doing this podcast to me, you hadn't told me any of those stories. Mm -hmm. But the story you did tell me, and I think kind of where you wanted to take this, was on the star of the show, on Judy Judy, Judy Garland was just 16 at the time of filming. She looks a lot younger. She looks younger because they did everything they could to make her look younger. They wanted to cast Shirley Temple. They wanted this literal child cast. But, you know, Shirley Temple did not have the singing chops of Judy Garland. So Judy was in, but they still tried really hard to make her look younger. In early screen tests, they tried putting her in a blonde wig, which thankfully they got rid of. She was wearing a corset. The reason her dress is that it's a pretty little blue and white dress you had that blue and white gingham dress i I had many variations of that blue and white dress but the reason that costume was chosen was to kind of mask her figure the colors kind of blurred her outline a little bit and made her look younger this was in addition to putting her on a pretty aggressive diet of basically coffee cigarettes and soup to try to keep her at this very slim figure I'm sure there must have been some amphetamines, some diet pills Amphetamines to wake up, barbiturates to go to sleep. Absolutely. They wanted, physically, they wanted a child. Mentally, they wanted an adult. Someone who could handle 12-hour workdays being the lead of a film. And so Judy was in this unfortunate position of being not enough on both ends of that spectrum. Well, one of the things you mentioned to me about this movie was that, you know, Judy Garland, who I think developed... A pretty bad addiction problem. Mm-hmm. She So she claimed that MGM started her addiction because they would put her on this regimen of uppers and downers since she was pretty much since she signed with them at almost 13 years old. Like as a child, they, they were giving her these pills. Other actors um, who she worked with, like Mickey Rooney, who she worked with on many, many movies. Another famous child actor. Yes. They were child actors together. Uh, He would later come out and say that that wasn't true. Uh, Her addiction came later and wasn't caused by the studio. So it's a little bit of a he said, she said. Not sure where it began, but certainly it was a very harmful environment for a child to be in. Well, got it. And I think you also mentioned that, I I mean, I don't know how to say this other than people were really mean to her on set. Yeah, yeah. So... Margaret Hamilton, who again played the witch, she was the only one who was really known to be nice to Judy on set. The three men who were playing the Tin Man, Scarecrow, and Cowardly Lion, they were not 
you know, it's the 1930s. They were not particularly pleased to have a young woman being the lead of oh, a right. major studio film. And they didn't have a lot in common with her to talk about. So it was there was definitely, a, at best, some resentment. And from the time she was so, 13? Yeah, so Judy Garland joined MGM when she was 13. She was actually kind of auditioned for them with her two sisters, and she was the one, kind of the standout. But as was kind of par for the course at the time, they said, we like you. We're going to change everything about you, but you've got something we can work with. Oh, wow. when she came in to audition for them, her name was Frances Ethel Gum. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Gum? Gum. G-U-M-M. Oh, wow. And they're like, all right, we're going to move that. You are now Judy Garland. Now, I had heard about... tongue a little bit more. I had heard about names being changed. I mm-hmm. didn't know Frances Ethel Gum. Yes. Right? Right. All right, so I had heard... Well, I, I mean, so I'm just guessing that most people had their names changed, right? So so Rita yes. Hayworth? Rita, Rita Hayworth was Margarita uh, Cancino. She was actually of Spanish descent from Brooklyn. She had electrolysis done to her hairline to reshape her hairline, and she would dye her naturally brown hair that famous red, which I have definitely not been copying my entire <laughs> life. Of course not. <laughs> Who, who who else got, can we think of that? I mean, Joan Crawford. Yep. Fake name. Uh, Lucille Lassour. Oh, see, that's a good name. See, that sounds good. Um, but I guess they wanted something a little more salt of the earth, hard hitting. So I went with Joan Crawford. Uh, her name was actually chosen by a magazine competition, and she hated it. Oh, come on. She thought Crawford sounded too much like crawfish. So she hated <laughs> it. So imagine, like, they give you your new name, they put you up on the movie poster. And you just hate it. Now, Rock Hudson is definitely a fake name. Definitely not his name. No, that was uh, that was Roy Scherer, and his name was chosen based on the Rock of Gibraltar and the Hudson River. Also, hated it. Hated the name. Amazing. Yeah, Cary Grant. Uh, Cary Grant. I love. I love. I love quizzing you like this. Yeah. This is okay. a legit quiz too. By the uh, way, I'm throwing Archib- these out there. His name was Archibald Leach. Which, let's let's put it this way, suave, debonair, Archie Leach versus, you know, Cary Grant. Fair enough. Fair enough. Now, uh, Clark Gable. No, his name was actually Clark Gable. Oh, okay. Good. Actually, I'm sorry. No, it's William Clark Gable. Like you, he decided William wasn't good enough. Yeah, yeah. I'm a William. William, I'm a middle name man. Middle name man. All right. right. No, it was incredibly common to change not just your name, but almost everything everything about you once you entered into Hollywood. But, but let's talk about that, about changing everything about you, because mm-hmm. Rock Hudson, right, you're changing or the image of sexuality, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I'm sure that was not uncommon. No. Uh, but we talk about why, and I think I know the answer to this, but I want you to, to talk about it. Why would the studio go to such great lengths? Why these great lengths to create the character of the, the, the actor? Partially, that's because, and I say this as someone who loves old movies dearly and truly. You do. They were churned out so quickly and with such little thought that when you went to the movies, you were not really going for the plot. You were going to watch your favorite actor. You weren't going to see whatever zillionth Catherine Hepburn, Spencer Tracy movie it was. You were going to see Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy together because you liked their personas. And that's kind of what it came down to was that the studio 
could control everything about the actor. How many studios were there? There were about five big studios. We had Warner Brothers, MGM, Paramount, Fox, that later became 20th Century Fox, and RKO Pictures, rest in peace. Those were kind of the big, the big five players. And when you went to work for them, you didn't work on them for just a film. You were contracted to them for how many years that they gave you. And once you were under contract, they owned you. You had to do whatever film they told you to do. You could not do a film without their permission. You had to do every film that they signed you up for. If you wanted to work on a film at another studio, you needed your parents' studio's permission. Everything was in-house. Well, now, how long did this go on? Because clearly that's not the... And, and mm-hmm. yes, what you're saying is that each studio wanted to have their leading man, the femme fatale, their ingenue. And they would put you in everything. You could do, like, you could have three movies releasing in a year if you were a star. And if you weren't a star, you weren't making much money. You would make what you were contracted to, but they could just hold you. They could say, all right, you've you've pissed us off. We're not going to put you in any movies for two years. And so you are stuck there for two years as you watch your career fade away. Well, so I'm I'm more familiar with Mm -hmm. this in sports where the idea of free agency and the like Mm -hmm. came in. Well, it wasn't until really the 1960s. I mean, it's pretty, pretty late. Right. But when did this change for the movie studios? So. And how did it change? So the big change came about in. I want to say, I think it's 1943 was when the studio system officially kind of began to decline because the actress Olivia de Havilland was suing her studio. She was Melanie. In yeah, Gone she was in Gone with the Wind. Yeah. Five-time Oscar nominee, two-time winner, amazing actress. And her case went all the way up to the Supreme Court where the Supreme Court sided with her against the studios due to some antitrust laws. And, you know, the studio system kind of limped on until about the 50s. You know, you could still see them doing their big makeovers. You know, Marilyn Monroe went from Norma Jean. But that was kind of that was kind of the peak of the studio system was 30s and 40s. And after that, it began to decline until it just faded away. And we have our modern idea of what Hollywood is, which it's always fascinated me how recently I've seen a lot of articles coming out saying that. There are no movie stars anymore. The movie star is dead. And all I can think about is the movie star never existed. These people that you that kind of created the idea, the myth of the movie star, they were as fake as the characters on screen because the studios would control what they could wear, where they could go. Studios could control who they married. Everything that they did had to be tightly controlled by the studios to maintain this image that had been created for them. So I think mm-hmm. in memes today, so I'm thinking about the... Which has always concerned me, honestly. Well, that's fair. But I'm thinking about that astronaut meme, mm-hmm. right, where the one astronaut is saying, oh, there are no movie stars, and the one the astronaut behind is pointing a gun and says, there never, never were. were. Yeah. Exactly. What I find fascinating, Harper, is that it sounds like the actual human being was fairly interchangeable. That what oh, was yeah. That what was important for the studio and important to the studio because it worked was the creation of the cartoon, the mm-hmm. the leading man or the like, and, and who the actual human being who filled that 
meat that space, void. right? Didn't. No, absolutely. And you would see that each studio had someone for that role. You had your your temptress. You had your uh, hometown hero, your romantic lead, your action lead. And once you have somebody for that slot, you have them until you tell somebody better came around because they couldn't go anywhere else. Well, this is what's fascinating to me, thinking about the actor strike today. Mm -hmm. Because what I understand, at least, is that a big part of the work stoppage is the fact that you can create virtual actors today that that you know certainly you can create scripts that are written not by a human being mm-hmm. but it, it it sounds like increasingly you can create virtual actors so it in a sense is fulfilling the studio's dream of oh, yeah. of, of creating the archetype the perfect controllable being to tell to sell your stories whereas before you needed at least a human with a with a decent face now you can you can create that in some weird amalgamation that's you know right definitely taking or, from everything they get on pinterest or it can be a 74 year old samuel jackson right and Digitally you can make de-aged right is that's amazing i think there's obviously i think there's a lot of very cool things that can be done with ai but the studios have always prioritized money over Well, sure, but but, I, but let me push back on that a second because what I find, it's a prioritization of mm-hmm. money, but it's money because this is what works. And what, what I find fascinating, and I think we've talked about this and we've certainly written mm-hmm. about it in a lot of different ways, is that what works for us human beings Mm -hmm. is not just the immediate script or story or words that we are presented with. It's not just the story on the screen, Mm -hmm. but even more so, and I think Hollywood really has got this down to a science now, it is the invisible story, right, that, that we are identifying with that actor who is playing that role on screen. And that's what is drawing you to oh, say, you know, it's, it's, it's Tracy and Hepburn, right? It's, I think that even today you have, it all comes down to kind of like the, the likability of actors. You know, how likable is this person? That's why now a lot of people talk about when breaking into the industry, it helps if you already have some sort of social media following. And I do think that 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 definitely does impact whether or not people want to go see a movie. I think you saw that with, I mean, that's why Johnny Depp was suing everybody. He was suing Amber Heard, saying that these allegations caused him to get fired, they hurt his reputation, and they cost him money. Because part of the reason why he was getting dropped was that public opinion had shifted against him and nobody wanted to go see him in uh, the latest Fantastic Beasts movie, which... Nobody wanted to see that movie anyway. I know you have a special, have a special not place in your heart, but a special hatred for that that those, those I have movies. Have a special place in hell for that movie. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. But where I kind of want to close this out on Harper is that it this is such an epsilon theory concept, mm-hmm. right? Is that to to try and see past the 
the plot, the movie that's on the screen, mm-hmm. and think about what is the movie or the plot above, behind, beyond that that is being right. presented to you in largely invisible ways, but in ways that motivate us so so intently. Yeah, no, I think it's something that we talk a lot about is, you know, the the meta narrative, the story within a story. We love talking about that. And I think sometimes it's easier to see when it's clearly spelled out for you. It's harder to see when it's something that exists so intrinsically in a system that's been around for over 100 years. You don't quite notice it as often because it's, you know, you like to say this is water, you know, you're like, what the hell is water? What do you, what do you mean there's a there's another narrative going on behind the scenes? Well, as always, Harper, thanks for this. I learned something today, and I think I kind of not respect the Hollywood system, the studio system, but I get it better now. And I see that Hollywood system in politics, in media. Once mm-hmm. you start looking for it, you can see it everywhere. Absolutely. Obviously, I love talking about this. I will take any chance to talk about The Wizard of Oz any chance at all. So thanks so much for joining me here, Ben. And thank you for tuning in. If you want to hear more, please check out our Curse Knowledge podcast on epsontheory.com. And make sure to tell us what you would like to hear us talk about on the forums as well.